Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. There are another, a number of other announcements uh, in your bulletin uh, that I want to encourage you to pay attention to and, and make note of, uh, but that's the only one I'll share this morning because I wanted to take time this morning to just uh, talk about briefly some of the events uh, that have been going on in our country over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, there's no doubt many of us have been heartbroken, angry, or frustrated uh, by the events in Charlottesville this weekend. And before the message this morning, I want to spend some time praying, uh, reflecting, and lamenting uh, the reality of racism and evil in our country. But I also want to, but I want to start that process. Uh, I feel like in, in the community of God and the people of God, uh, we have to have room and space uh, not only in our individual and personal practices of faith, but in our corporate practices of faith for lament. And this is certainly cause for lament this morning. Uh, but to help, help lead us into those uh, practices, uh, I want to read a resolution that was passed uh, this summer uh, by the Church of the Nazarene, which is our denominational affiliation uh, at our General Assemblies that happened just a couple of months ago. Uh, but a resolution that we, we passed as a denomination uh, says this. We lament the legacy of every form of racism throughout the world, and we seek to confront that legacy through repentance, uh, reconciliation, and biblical justice. And so we seek uh, to repent of every behavior in which we have been either overtly or covertly implicit with the sin of racism, both past and present. And in confession and lament, we seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, I like that we're part of a de- denomination that explicitly renounces the actions that we've seen over the past couple of days. Uh, these events are far enough away that it would certainly be easy for us to go about our business, focus on us, and fail to do or say anything. Uh, but I want us to realize this morning that all of humanity is our brother and sister. And so we lament. But we also confess uh, we confess and ask forgiveness for every time that we've considered ourselves superior or better than our brothers and sisters. We confess for the times when we have looked at a person with dark skin and assumed that they weren't an, as intelligent as us, or a person with black skin and assumed they were dangerous and a threat. For the times that we've looked at others with unwashed clothes and bodies and assumed that we were more valuable than them. The events of this weekend are simply an embodiment of those attitudes, and it shows us just how evil racism is. And so this morning we lament and we confess, and to help us do that, I want to do a couple of things. The first is that we're going to watch a video uh, of a song titled Forgive Us uh, by the band Loud Harp. It's actually a song that was recorded in light of uh, the events of this weekend, And so I encourage you, as we play this song and show this video, uh, to allow the words of the song and the beauty of art to sink deep into your hearts. And then after the video, I'll lead us in a time of corporate prayer where I will pray a prayer. And then as a congregation, I'll ask you to respond after each little break, to respond out loud with these words, O Lord, only you can make all things new. Uh, If you have never participated in a prayer liturgy like this, uh, I want to admit that certainly it may feel awkward and weird or even uncomfortable. Uh, As much as possible, I encourage you to actually embrace those feelings. (laughs) 
uh, and you embrace them as a way of entering into uh, the depth of the prayers uh, and, and the lamenting hope of this phrase, O oh Lord, only you can make all things new. And so you may feel awkward about it, but I encourage you to speak out loud uh, those words after each pause uh, in the time of prayer, uh, because certainly that is a declaration of lament and hope. And then after that, uh, we will go about this morning's message. Uh, but wanted to spend a few moments this morning just recognizing all that's going on in our country and in our world. So uh, thanks for coming to church today. <laughs> and uh, we want to have space for lament. So let's watch this video and then we'll enter into a time of prayer together. To enter into a time of prayer together, and the, the congregational response after each pause will be up on the screen. But again, it's, O oh Lord, only you can make all things new. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your kingdom is good news for a world caught in racial hostility. We ask that you would give us grace for the deep challenges facing our country. Lord, we confess our anger, our deep sadness, our collective sense of weakness to see this world healed through our own strength. Lord, we honestly confess that our country has a long history of racial oppression, that racism has been a strategy of evil powers and principalities. 
Lord, we confess that the gospel is good news for the oppressed and the oppressor. Both are raised up. Both are liberated, but in different ways. The oppressed are raised up from the harsh burden of inferiority and the oppressor from the destructive illusion of superiority. Lord, we confess that the gospel is your power to form a new people, not identified by dominance and superiority, but by unity in the spirit. Lord, we ask that you would help us name our part in the country, this country's story of racial oppression and hostility, whether we have sinned against others by seeing them as inferior, or whether we have been silent in the face of evil. Forgive us our sin. Lord, we pray for our enemies, for those who have allowed satanic powers to work through them. Grant them deliverance through your mighty power. Lord, we ask that you would form us to be peacemakers. May we be a people who speak the truth in love as we work for a reconciled world. Lord, we commit our lives to you, believing that you are working in the world in spite of destructive powers and principalities. Bring healing to those who are hurt, peace to those who are anxious, and love to those who are fearful. We wait for you, O Lord. Make haste to help us. Heavenly Father, today our hearts are broken and saddened by the events in our world and in our country, in many ways in our own backyard. And so we pray, God, that today as the people of God that we would uh, lament this reality, but to also, God, would you give us uh, a spaciousness in our heart to learn to love those who are not like ourselves. God, we, we confess, we admit that our natural inclination is to see ourselves uh, more highly than we should, that those maybe who uh, belong to our tribe or are like us, we tend to place higher value, but God, today... Help us to see all of humanity through your eyes, that each and every person has unsurpassable worth. And so, God, may we as a, as a community and as a people uh, do all that we can, all that we know how, uh, to resist this, to rise up against it, recognizing first that it begins with prayer and confession and lament. And so, God, be with us in these days. And we're reminded of the prayer, of the line in the prayer that you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And today, God, that is our prayer and the longing of our heart. Lord, would you make speed to save us, make haste to help us. Lord, would you make all things new. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we began this year in the Gospel of John. And we took a break around Easter to focus on the good news of resurrection life, along with a study of the Psalms and a few other things. And then a couple of weeks ago, 
Uh, We've turned our attention back to this important book and this important gospel. Uh, Today, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 9. And uh, today I want to read John chapter 9. My original plan was to read all of John chapter 9. However, I'm only going to be preaching from the first 12 verses. uh, And so I have decided to only read the first 12 verses. I went back and forth. Um, But I want to read John chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 12 to you. Uh, it's interesting, there's so much about what's going on in our world that I feel like fits into this, uh, this message. Uh, I feel like it's a, a timely message for us, and so I pray that our hearts would be open uh, to receive exactly what the Lord would want to do in our lives and hearts today. Um, and so let's read John chapter 9. You can follow along with me uh, in your own Bibles or uh, devices. Uh, but it says this, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents have sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. For as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said no. Uh, He only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man that they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed. And then I could see. Well, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. (laughs) And it goes on from there where Jesus is then questioned by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are trying to figure out all that has gone on. But the reality is, um, is if... The reality is this passage presents to us a significant problem. <laughs> and, and that I have to address. And if I didn't address the problem, you would likely go home saying, you know, why didn't he talk about uh, that crazy part right at the very beginning? Um, And so let's explore this morning the elephant in the room, shall we? Uh, The question is, what in the world is going on with the disciples' question uh, about this man's sin? Uh, The disciples ask the question, who has sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And at first, this question to us seems actually quite offensive. Uh, Why are they assuming that blindness is the sign of, of sin or some moral shortcoming? Uh, And and the answer, quite frankly, or quite simply, is actually that this is, in fact, their worldview. The disciples held a worldview that believed the world was organized and ordered to reward righteousness and punish unrighteousness. And so here is a man born blind. Uh, So their assumption was that someone did something wrong for which this man's blindness was the punishment. Now, before you go to throw rotten tomatoes through time to show your disgust at the disciples, 
Uh, let's take a moment to understand why they would have held this belief and this worldview. Uh, because we affirm with the disciples uh, that God is good. Amen? Amen. I hope, hopefully we get an amen there. And we also affirm along with the disciples that God is all-powerful. And so in a world with an all-powerful God who is also all-good, a man certainly cannot be born blind for no reason. And so the disciples thought clearly this is punishment for something. And this way of thinking, this, this worldview, is actually an attempt to hold together a consistent view of God's justice. Now, for us, it may seem that, oh, how could we hold that view? That doesn't make any sense. But certainly, this is their attempt uh, to hold together a consistent view of God's justice. And so the disciples had a worldview or a perspective that said anything that is in the world that seemed unfair is actually just seems unfair, but it actually isn't. But rather that thing was punishment for sin that is apparently uh, secret or hidden. This is the only way that our brothers and sisters in Christ from long ago could make sense of God's justice. And so we shouldn't be tempted to throw rotten tomatoes through time. We shouldn't uh, give them a gigantic eye roll. We shouldn't do any of this, but rather just seek to understand the world in which they live. They were wrestling with how do we, uh, how do we reconcile the all-good, all-powerful God with the reality of these things in the world. And so I would submit to you this idea that, that what seems unfair um, is actually not unfair uh, according to the disciples' worldview, but rather is punishment for sin, uh, is the best attempt that the disciples had at what we call the problem of evil. The problem of evil is how can bad or horrible things happen in a world ruled by an all-powerful and all-good God? And of course, as you have no doubt discovered already, this is a question that we continue to struggle with thousands of years later. And the truth is that many parts of the church, that is the capital C church, many parts of the church have not come up with a better answer uh, than the disciples' worldview. Because in many ways, uh, we still hold to this view that anyone struggling uh, is struggling based on the result of their own sin or their own moral shortcomings. Uh, and so I would ask that you would forgive me in advance for the things that I'm about to mention certainly may be or certainly may sound offensive. And what I'm trying to do is, is to articulate mindsets and perspectives that I believe are still present, although often not made explicit. But the reality is we still try to attach someone's misfortune to their own moral shortcomings or sins. We tend to see the world in a stri that, it, that is strictly run based on personal cause and effect. And so, again, uh, forgive me for the offensive nature of these things, but they're, they're meant to just be to illustrate a point. But we, we sometimes think, often not out loud, uh, you are sick with disease because you chose to expose yourself to certain chemicals and products and foods that I am quite wisely staying away from so that I don't get sick like you. You are homeless because you have a debilitating addiction while I live in the suburbs uh, because I have learned to master my appetites and be the ruler of my own destiny. You are overweight only because you continue to make poor food choices, but I am the picture of health because I eat mostly a paleo diet and only eat ice cream on days that end in Y. 
Or we sometimes believe that the little girl born with black skin in a poverty-stricken area of Chicago will grow up with all of the same opportunities as the little girl born with white skin in the suburbs. And we think if the little girl with black skin would just work hard like her sister with white skin, then she would have all the same opportunities and everything will be equal. Here's a little side note. Privilege is being blind to systems of oppression while also assuming your experience of the world is normative for everyone. Let me say that again. Privilege is being blind to systems of oppression while assuming your experience of the world is normative for everyone. That's not a perfect definition, but I think it moves us in the right direction of recognizing sometimes that we come from very, very privileged positions. Now, the offensive nature of these observations, and I can see some of you are already uh, writing your emails to me, and I look forward to getting those. Um, but, But the offensive nature of these observations reveals something really, really important, that this worldview, this way of seeing the world, only works if you are rich, well fed, and healthy. Uh, Which is to say that no one can accuse you of a sin. (laughs) But all of these perspectives, of course, fail to realize that, yes, the overweight person probably could make better food choices, but so could us all. (laughs) And some folks who are homeless do have addictions, but so do a huge number of rich people that live in fancy houses and drive really nice cars. You see, the point is, is that we are all in the same mess. We all share the same humanity and are all in need of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if it is good news, it has to be good news for everyone or it is not good news at all. And so while I may not have your particular ailment or sin or struggle, uh, I certainly have one or many of my own. In fact, you have to admire the honesty of the lyrics of a song named uh, of song uh, by the band called Mute Math. Uh, the song is called Best of Intentions, and some of the lyrics are this: "I'd like to help you get your hang-ups under control, but I've got far too many of my own. Uh, I'd like to help you with the devils roaming your soul, but I've got far too many, far too many." Of my own. You see, failure to, to recognize uh, that this shared humanity, this sense in which all of us are broken people in need of a Savior, is actually self righteousness in its ugliest form. But on the very same time, we have to recognize that there is a tension, right? Uh, the, the tension comes from the reality that. That it is generally true that good choices will lead to good results. If you make good choices in life, you will have good results in life. That is generally true, right? If you are kind, you are often get, get gratitude in return. And it is generally true that, that poor choices will, will lead to poor outcomes in life. For example, if you insist on being an ungrateful jerk, you will likely have a slew of broken relationships in your wake, right? These things are generally true, but they are not absolutely true or universally true. We, we must live with the tension and the reality that sometimes kindness is scorned and the jerk is successful. The point that I'm trying to make with all of this is that this is a conundrum. It's a difficult question. 
And we need the wisdom of Jesus to speak into our lives and into our hearts. To help us find our way through the muddiness and the complicated nature of the world in which we live. And so here's the disciples' perspective. Who has sinned? Someone obviously has sinned. For this man would not be born blind. A blind man, a, a man born blind, certainly could not have any fault of his own. He was blind from birth. He is innocent. So what has happened that this man is being punished for this? That's the disciples' question. And it illustrates a worldview in which we've just talked about. And so now how does Jesus respond to this difficult question and this conundrum? Well, at first glance, it appears that he says something that could be summed up as this. Don't worry about it, disciples. Everything happens for a reason. You ever heard that? (laughs) I'll bet you've heard it all the time. That's one of the, what's one of, if you are a Christian, that is likely one of your favorite lines when faced with difficulty. Everything happens for a reason, we say. And at first glance, it might be that that's precisely the point that Jesus is making. And so if we aren't careful, we can use this passage as a proof text for what is called blueprint theology. If you've been around Emmaus Road for a little while, you've probably heard me talk about blueprint theology. But blue, blueprint theology, it's hard to say, uh, it's, I, but I think I can explain it. <laughs> blueprint theology says that everything that happens in the world is precisely as God intends it for it to happen. And that through it all, God is therefore bringing himself glory. And this works as long as your deepest struggle is an ingrown toenail. Uh, But it breaks down quickly when you are betrayed or abused or marginalized. In fact, I've heard, I've had many people in my office experiencing those realities in the world. Being abused. Being marginalized. And they've had well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ look at them and say, this has happened just as precisely as God intended it to happen. And they look at me and say, how am I supposed to love that God? What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to give God glory when everything just happens precisely as it's supposed to happen? And blueprint theology also breaks down completely in face of systemic evil like was put on display in Virginia this weekend. And so we need to understand Jesus' response. He says, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. And so the first thing he does is he refutes their claim. He, he challenges and pushes against their worldview that says clearly this is, uh, the, the world works as though you just put a, like a slot machine. You put in a righteousness uh, coin into the machine and you get a reward out. You put an unrighteousness coin into the machine and you get a, a consequence out. Uh, Jesus appears to be saying the world is not that clear. Uh, In fact, Jesus appears to be pushing back against this viewpoint as if to say the world is a complicated and mysterious place. It isn't ordered like that. But what Jesus then does after he refutes this worldview is he, he heals the man from his blindness with dirt and spit and the waters of a pool. These are very earthly 
natural things, right? And you think, what in the world is Jesus doing? Have you ever had this thought? Jesus must have tons of spit, (laughs) right? Don't say you've never thought that when you read this story. I think of that every time. I'm like, man, he's got some saliva going to make mud. That is unbelievable. But he spits into the ground, fashions some, some clods of dirt that are muddy, puts them on the man, man's eyes, and then says, go now and wash in the pool of Siloam. Dirt, spit, water, very natural, very earthly elements that Jesus uses. And in fact, these dirt and water are the things that give life, but also can be chaotic and unpredictable. Think with me for a moment about water and dirt. Water is simultaneously the most life-giving resource on the planet and the most destructive. If you've ever seen planet Earth, you know that. (laughs) And then dirt provides for us a solid foundation as we fly through space on this pale blue dot. (laughs) Right? Right now, we are flying through space on this little pale blue dot in the middle of space. And the dirt gives us a solid foundation on which to stand. And it also is the soil out of which things can bloom and grow. But dirt itself can be disrupted and shift and, and cause our very foundation to shake. But nevertheless... These are the elements that Jesus uses, spit, dirt, and water, to heal a man who was born blind. So I want us to think about this theologically for a moment. Here's the disciples making an assumption about the way the world works. Then Jesus refuting that assumption and saying, no, that's not how it is. And then he takes the very natural elements of this world and this earth and he uses it to bring about something brand new in the life of this man whose world is foundationally and fundamentally changed because it used to be that not a day in his life could he see, but then he goes and leaves the pool with sight. There's an old world that Jesus refutes, but he uses the elements from that world to bring about a a new world. Do you see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going with this? Here's what I think Jesus is saying, both through his words and his actions. He's saying this, the chaos of this world is the raw material out of which the good, all-powerful God is making new creation. Oh, come on, there's an amen in there somewhere, right? The raw, the the chaos of this world is the raw material out of which the good, all-powerful God is bringing about his new creation. And this is why, church and the people of God, that we can pray and we can lament and we can hope as we say together as a community, Oh, Lord, only you can make all things new. Only you can do that. Jesus refutes the belief that the man is born blind because of some simple cause and effect equation and then takes the material of the earth to heal the man and make him new. This, by the way, is what the word of God has been doing since the very beginning. (laughs) 
The Bible opens with this creation poem that is all about how the word of God takes the chaos and, and brings order out of it and calls it creation. And the story is told in such a way that it isn't in any way trying to answer the question of how God did it. All the arguments in the church about young earth or old earth are mute according to scripture. Absolutely mute. Completely missed the point. Because it's not trying to answer a question of how God did it, but rather it's trying to show us and demonstrate and teach us about the God who did it. <laughs> Amen. This is a God who is able, who, who has in his very nature to take chaos and bring order, to take something old and make something new. And, and I want to say to you that the degree to which we, we move in this direction of bringing about newness in the world is the degree to which we are working with the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And insofar as we are working against that, then we are working against the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so when we see brokenness and injustice and evil in our world, we speak out against it. We lament and confess for our part in it. And then we say, oh God, would you help us to move and participate with the coming of your kingdom and, and when all things will be made new. This is why, by the way, John the Revelator is given a vision and he records it while he's on an island. They imprison him in an island because they're like, oh, what could he do there? Um, to, the answer, to which the answer is, write a really foundational book for the church. <laughs> and so John the Revelator gets this vision while he's on the island of Patmos, and he, he begins to, to get a vision from God that says, this is what the world will look like. This is what God is up to. This is what God is doing. So that we can at least have a few, a few puzzle pieces and pictures of what it will look like when God does make all things new and then we can as a people of God just begin pushing toward that moving in that direction participating in that work as much as we can here's what I'm trying to say to you God is the original fixer upper You'll need to forgive me for the corniness of this illustration. But for those of you who aren't aware, there is a show on HGTV called Fixer Upper in which this couple, Chip and Joanna, I know some of you are fans, Chip and Joanna work together. They work with home buyers to buy a beat-up old house and then fix it up to turn it into their dream home. Um, but there is a recurring theme with every house in every episode. So if you've never seen it, spoiler alert. Okay? But here's the, now, as they go into the house, it's in terrible shape. You have to fix it up. It has to meet code. And so, of course, there's the theme where they replace the rotted drywall and the bad electrical wires and all of that. But what I'm talking about is this. In every house, in every episode, in order to make the house a home and in order to make it unique, they always, Joanna usually, always goes 
to a junkyard or to an old farm or their own pile of junk where they can get some reclaimed wood and then make something new out of it. I promise you I have a point. Let me tell you about reclaimed wood. Reclaimed wood is wood that has been through hell, but is now the raw material used to make something beautiful. Reclaimed wood is wood that has been through hell. It's been weather beaten. Sometimes it's been burned. It's been sitting and scorched in the sun for years. I mean, it's been through a lot, right? And it bears a lot of scars. Does this sound like your life? But then what, 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 what they do is they take this reclaimed wood and they fashion it in such a way that it is made to make something beautiful. It is the material out of which something beautiful comes. And I would want to say to you about John chapter 9, that is precisely the point of this passage. And that is precisely the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the point is not that God wanted the wood to go through hell in the first place. The point is, is that in this complicated, nuanced, and broken world, crap happens. And man, I was tempted to say the other word there. And I thought about it, and I decided to go with the cleaner version. Good choice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the point is, crap happens. But when it does... We have a God who takes the raw material of that brokenness and then makes something beautiful. God is always working in that direction. And I've said it already in this sermon, but I want to say it again. Insofar as we are working in that direction, we are working with the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And insofar as we are resisting that movement, we are working against the God who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what your circumstances are like. I don't know how the events in Virginia have, have affected you or, or pressed in on your heart. Maybe they've, they've just weighed heavy on you. Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about this morning. But here's the reality. Our suffering and our pain bring maturity and uniqueness that makes the new thing that God is doing beautiful. Just like the just like making furniture out of reclaimed wood. Have you ever noticed this about stuff that appears on the show Fixer Upper? The point is not to erase all the scars of the wood. In fact, it's it's the reality that the wood still bears the scars that makes the new thing beautiful. The new thing wouldn't be as beautiful if it didn't also bear the marks of the old and of the pain. This is the work of God in the world, church, to take all the places where there is brokenness, injustice, war, violence, hatred, poverty, sin, and hunger, and make something new out of it. And this is precisely what Jesus does through the cross and the resurrection. 
that God in flesh goes through hell, and it is ugly. He endures betrayal, abandonment, insult, abuse, and much more. But all along, the wisdom of God was working to make all things new. And even in the beauty of his resurrected body, Jesus bore the scars of the hurt, but that had then been redeemed. And so I just want to encourage you today of this reality. Whatever circumstance you have found in your life, and you would call it, this is suffering, I would say to you. This was not God's plan or design for you. This is not God punishing you. Now, if you made a poor choice and you face consequences, then that's a reality of our world. Poor choices have bad consequences. But that's not God's best for you or God's intention for you. What God desires to do is take all the, all the ugliness, all the brokenness, all the sin that may be a part of your past, may be a part of your present, and God desires to turn that into something beautiful, to redeem it for his purposes and for his glory. Because God is the original fixer-upper, the one who can take all of our brokenness and bring beauty out of it. And so today, church, I would say to you this. May our lives be the reclaimed wood that God uses to make something beautiful. Amen? But let me also say this. May this church, this church, Emmaus Road Church, be the reclaimed wood that God uses to proclaim and embody the beauty of the gospel in our city and in the world. But God desires to take all of the scars and the brokenness of our past and turn it into something beautiful. Did you know that this church was planted in Fort Collins in 1924? Now, it became Emmaus Road in 2008. But the Church of the Nazarene in Fort Collins, this body of believers, y'all, have been in this city proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ since 1924. And let me tell you something. You can't exist that long as a church without having some scars, without having some ugly parts of your past. But guess what? It is inside the purposes of God to take all of that and turn it into beauty. For that's, what, that's, that's his very nature. That's, a, that's his very character. That's what he has been doing since the very, very beginning. And so I encourage you to look up, be aware, see God at work, And invite others to say, hey, come over here and see what God is doing. Because he's doing something brand new in this place. Today, as we come to the table, this meal is a way for us to practice to recognize, in many ways, to embody our belief, our faith, and our trust that this is the kind of God that we serve. The kind of God who takes 
ugliness, scars, hurt, pain, and then turns it into something new. Because when we take this bread and we dip it in the juice, what we are saying is that the Savior of the world was killed. He died a brutal and violent death at the hands of a sinful system that killed an innocent man. And yet in the beauty and wisdom of God, what God was doing all along was absorbing all the darkness and all the sin of the world into himself that he might defeat it through the resurrection. And so we can't come to the table remembering the death of Christ without moving right to the resurrection of Christ. And so as we come to the table today, we are in fact in a very tangible way remembering, embodying, and proclaiming to the world this is what we believe about who God is. And if, if the picture of God that we have in our minds or that we see in the, in the culture or in our brothers and sisters doesn't match this kind of God, then we know that it isn't the God who is revealed in, the, in Jesus Christ. It isn't the God who has made flesh for us. And so let us come to the table today as a proclamation of who God is with great faith and great trust that he is working to bring beauty from ashes. Amen? Amen. Let me say a word of prayer and then I'll give some further instructions.